The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Today we have the conclusion of the sermon series on the patriarchs. These are men who lived about 4,000 years ago. You see this pretty picture up here from a church window. It's actually marked Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these men, although they lived 4,000 years ago, speak to us today. And they speak about the truth of who God is and who we are to be to God and the road for us to God. So I want to just kind of conclude some of the things that I find in, in meditating on the lives of these men and the truths that kind of bubble up. Um, some of the things that all three of these men had in common were they had significant encounters with God. God came to them, spoke to them, no doubt. It wasn't guessing, they had encounters. They set up altars and called upon the name of God. They responded to God by calling upon him. They chose God to be their God. They said, you will be my God. They made that decision. They crossed that line. He wasn't just a hobby or a thing. He was going to be their God. They all demonstrated their faith in tangible outward ways, as listed in Hebrews 11 that we won't go into today. They also wonderfully experienced divine rescues. How many people want a divine rescue? Amen. We need them daily. It's called salvation. And this is a thing that we'll conclude with later, but each one of them was promised that they would be a blessing and be a blessing to all the earth. And in every generation, People turned to these men in their generation and said, you're blessed of God. It is obvious. Some even rose up in envy. But their, their, their cattle, their sheep multiplied a hundredfold. And people said, this is an ordinary reproduction. This is something of God. So all these three men had this in their life. They speak to us today. They should be part of who we are and what is experienced in our life. But I want to talk about two more things today that are not... Um, maybe uh, uh, listed there or not listed there. One, and I'm going to move quickly through this first section, is God chose them without offering an explanation why. Abraham, he seems like a noble character. You read through, he seems like a good guy. He even rescues his, his nephew Lot from some trouble, rises up, does good things, has good negotiations with his business partners. I mean, he's a noble guy. You really do see it. He, he handles himself well in his culture. I can see why God maybe picked him, okay? Isaac, eh, I'm not sure. Isaac, Isaac's the mysterious one to me some. He's got less details in him. But then you come to Jacob. I wouldn't pick Jacob. You probably wouldn't pick Jacob either. Jacob lied to his father, flat out. Not in a small way either, not a little white lie. He stole his brother's birthright. Yes, I'm your son Esau, bless me. He stole it. And then, in his brother's low moment, where he said he's starving to death, he takes advantage of him. I'm starving. Please give me food. I'm, I've been out in the wilderness. I'm hungry. He takes complete advantage of somebody he's supposed to love and care for. 
Jacob is not on my list of people to pick as being the blessing to all the world. But this speaks to us. God knows what's in you. Whatever is happening now, whatever you've seen in the people around you, God knows what he birthed within you. He chose you and selected you before you were even born in your mother's womb. He knows what's in you. And he knows what's ahead. And he can get you to great things. He can make you a blessing to everyone else around you. You may not see it now. The things you're doing now may not show that that's the direction of your life. You might be like a Jacob who just has trouble with your family and does wrong things. But God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, knows what he wants to do with your life. And he chooses you. We, if you drink in these truths, they can change the way you live. Because our world says time and time again, your, your worth is based upon your performance. Your worth is based upon what you can do and create. And God is saying through these three men, doesn't matter what other people see. I know what's in you because I made you. And I'm choosing you to be mine. I'm choosing you to be a blessing to those around you. I'm choosing you. And to enjoy the weight of that and the awe of that and to take it in. I shared with you one time um, of a man in China who heard for the first time that God loved him. It so stirred within him that he said for an hour ride home in the car, God loves me. He loves me. God, amazing God, this great amazing God loves me. God loves me. And then God loves me. He loves. This is amazing. He's chosen me. He selected me because he knows what he's put in me. Every picture I have about myself, he's got a better picture. I digress for a minute here because this is a truth that changed my life. There's a man named Brendan Manning who wrote a book called Abba's Father, Abba's Child. And he wrote in there a term called projectionism. Okay? This projectionism, he said, was in our lives, living our regular everyday life, we take what we feel about ourselves and we take that and we project it upon God and say the way I feel about me is the way God feels about me. That is inherently a lie. Not just a, a, a little cloud over your head. That's a lie. The God of the universe chose Jacob. The God of the universe selects whoever he will and he wants to bring you near. That is your destiny. That is you. You are called to be a blessing to everyone around you. And you can taste of it because he did it through these three men. They marched through the wilderness. They had opposition and waiting. They had difficulty things, but they came through. And they were a blessing, and everybody knew it. They scratched your head and said, I don't want to be that guy's enemy. Literally, a king, two kings came to them, or princes, or whatever the land said, I want to make a treaty with you. And Isaac says, wait, you just kicked me out of your land because I was getting too big. I can see that God is with you, and I don't want any trouble with you. That is our destiny and our hope. All right? So the first thing is God chose them without explaining why. You don't have to have an explanation why God chose you. He loves you, he made you, and he wants you his own. This also frees you up from judging. 
We often see people within the church, around us, that annoy us and aggravate us. You can turn on the TV and see certain televangelists and you can quickly turn the channel. Well, gosh, I'm dating myself. We don't turn the channel anymore. <laughs> when I was a kid, we didn't fight for the remote control. We'd rip the dial off the thing and we'd fight over that. Oh my. You can <laughs> remote control. We'll go, we'll modernize the sermon. Oh my. But, oh, I totally lost my thought. <laughs> when you're looking at the TV, and you see different aspects and different flavors of the Christian body, you can say, and you can. And you can cut off any life from other people that are different than us or too different from us. And yet, we can sit back and say, that person might be totally messed up in that area. I don't see that as scriptural. I don't see that as right. Oh, their life is a mess. It's come on the, pub, the tabloids. It's a mess. But God chose them, even with their messes. And so we don't jump to judgment and degrading that person and saying they're worthless and they're doing harm. And they're, we go to discernment. Discernment is entirely different than judgment. Recognizing the choosing of God, that God chooses, allows us to slip out of the trap of the enemy and say, no, this is wrong. This is not the truth. This is not the way I think it should be presented. But God loves this person. May God use him. Paul did it. Paul said the same thing. He said some people in his day, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, I jumped right to Apostle. He said some people out there are preaching just to serve their own belly, to make things get wealthy and rich. It was in Paul's day too. And he said, but I rejoice in this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. Let's take this wonderful thing that God chose us. God chose the weirdo next to us, okay? Right? He does. He chooses us. It frees us from having to be right. It frees us from having to decide why God picked us, why we're better than. He brought us in because he loves us. He made us. The second big truth that I see here in all these three lives, and I hope this speaks a great word of encouragement, because this truth, although found in these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is throughout the history of Christianity, and it comes to us today even through men like William Wilberforce and Charles Simeon and Lydia Prince. And I could list a thousand other people I've read autobiographies on who have overcome what these three men faced. Every single one of them had a truth of God implanted in their life. And when they tried to walk it out, they faced opposition. They faced hardship and difficulties. Some would say suffering. And they had to wait. Is that a happy message? <laughs> Why would God make us wait? Why would God oppose us? Hopefully we can touch on those in a minute, but let me cover these guys. Abraham. He was told that the promised land was all his and he was to wander through it take his sheep through and his cattle and everything else. And he has arguments with people over the wells that he digs. Like, wait, this is my land. You're chasing me off my land. This is what God told me. So he goes and he builds another well. In fact, in the time of Isaac, he had to do the same thing. Isaac had to go through the land and undig all his father's wells. 
all the places his father went, and his own wells were contended for. Chapter 26, I'm, I was going to read it today, but we don't have the time for it. Take Genesis chapter 26 home today because it speaks about all these truths in a really compact area. But he has to undig the wells, and then the very wells he's digging, one place he even gets like a live spring, like, a, like bubbling water or something, and they contend for it. And he calls it Esik, which means enmity or strife or struggling, that kind of stuff. So he had this promise from God that this is his land. This is my land. But these people are taking away my well. How can this be my land? That's opposition. They also were spoken to of things that they had to wait long time for, a long time. We know about Abraham. We talked about him waiting 25 years, waiting for a child that was promised. And it wasn't just a child he was waiting for. He was waiting for the promise that would go to all the nations. He, there was a promise that he would bless all the nations, that the nations would come through him. So in that 25 years, he came up with a human solution too. He had another son. Can you imagine, after coming up with a human solution, I have an Ishmael, Woohoo! I got the son, we've arranged it. I left Sarah out of the deal, but hey, we got, we got a son. And then God says, I'm sorry. That's not part of the deal. You're going to have to wait longer. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. I got a kid. I can give him everything. You can bless the nation through him. Sorry. Put that aside. Waiting opposition, the stirring and the turbulence of God fulfilling his word in us. Jacob also had the opposition we spoke about last week of returning to the promised land. He was supposed to be back there. God spoke it to him and he can't get away. He worked seven years for the first wife. Then he worked seven for the second. And then he's got to work six years for the sheep after that. And then everything's stolen from him, literally stolen. His own father-in-law steals it from him. And what's he got? He also had to wait for offspring for over seven years. God promised by the time he promised that he'd have offspring, he had to wait seven years. Thank God it gets a little shorter, right? Abraham 25, then 20, then seven. You know, hopefully it says something about promises coming quicker, huh? What my heart wants to just communicate to you is that we often get torn up inside. We know the promise of God. We know that he has promised us abundant life. That's a word spoken to all the body. He's promised to us joy, righteousness, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the book of Romans. He has wonderful promises. And we can ride that wave, but there are seasons that we face. The opposition comes and we are thrown. We're digging wells in a land promised to us and somebody covers them over. Or we have to wait and our own human solutions fall to the ground. In those seasons, we have to take heart because of the one who speaks these words. And I want to share with you a couple stories of men and women outside of Isaac, Abraham, and, and Jacob who experienced these. Lydia Prince, I'm going to take you back a couple years to the war in Israel. Lydia Prince was a lady from, I believe, Denmark, 
Upper Germany, that area. She left a wealthy career. God called her. She goes to Jerusalem, harsh circumstances. In her autobiography, she, she talks about how a baby was left at the doorstep of her house one night. She didn't even know what she was supposed to do in Israel. She didn't have any clue, and a baby shows up. And the Lord begins to speak to her that this is part of why I have you here. Lydia Prince takes this baby in without any financial support. And then one night, in the middle of the hostilities in Israel, back in the 40s and 50s, very hostile time, she writes about running in the streets with a baby in her arms because she has to get to a barricaded area and there's gunfire all around. Running in the middle of the night. She could be back in her home in the Netherlands in a comfortable house, a wealthy place, but there she is, promised by God, running in the dark with gunfire to save this baby. Later, People said to her, there's no way you went down that street last night. There's no possible way you made it. You don't understand the battlements that were around you. You don't understand what was going on that, that last night. You no way you could make it through that street. And it was a long journey she had to make up the old streets of Jerusalem. And she made it. God protected her. Was it difficult? Yes. Was there opposition? Yes. Did she save the baby? Yes. Was she shaken? I'm sure she was. In a nutshell, Lydia Prince walked with God and she walked out this call in Jerusalem. Not only did she find found the Lydia Fellowship that some women maybe in here may be involved in or have heard about, the Lydia Fellowship of Prayer, but eventually more and more orphaned children came to her. She received Muslim children. She received Christian children. She received Jewish children, all those who were abandoned without any financial support, without any real, real sponsor. And she prayed with these children and sought God with these children. And did God meet her? In such a way that throughout that section of Jerusalem, Muslim women, Jewish women, and Christian women saw that she loved those children from those different faiths, from those different backgrounds. They would come to her and get baptized in the Holy Spirit and their life would never be the change. She became known as the woman with a blessing. That kind of thing. People would go to her. Every background. And then she faced opposition from another Christian missionary. I hate to admit it was an American. But listen to the preposterousness of this. Here she is, hasn't any, any real uh, ambition to make a name for herself or do anything, but she is blessing Muslims, Christians, and Jews with the Holy Spirit in this whole area. They're coming to her. Comes knocking on your door. Hey, we have a church down the street that's doing this ministry, and you're taking from our work. You need to send them to us you imagine the audacity of it? Now, it doesn't record exactly the words they used, but somebody knocking on your door, oh, we see that God's doing the work we want in our place. You, you move it down here. You shouldn't be doing this here. Can you imagine? Yes. You know what she did? God, if this is your work, not mine, I don't, it's yours. And she sent the women down the street to another mission. You know what happened? 
through these levels of opposition, God raised her up that women from all over the city started to, or no, no, I'm sorry, the women were the first wave. Men, military men from England, many of the English men, it got known in the, in the English military that if you want a blessing when you're in an Israel station, you go to this corner on this house and you meet this woman and you will never be the same. God has a calling and we're supposed to be a blessing to everyone else around us. Everyone else around us. Charles Simeon, really quick, he's another British man, or he's, he's my first British man. He lived in Cambridge, graduate of Eton. I'm learning all these things, how important they are to your culture and the way things work. Eton is woo, he's a big boy. Um, he got radically saved in college. In fact, I, I hate to pass over a good story, so I can't. <laughs> he was brought up in a home where his mother died at a young age, and his father had to take over the caring, but his father wasn't a Christian man. His father was very much more business-oriented, very much into other things. But he knew enough from his mother but the, by, the, by the time he got to college, the, the reverend, the vicar, of the college said to him, son, you are going to come this Sunday and do communion at at church. And he had enough fear of God in him that he said he was neurotic. He didn't use that word, that's more modern, but but he literally, he was looking for something to make himself feel righteous because he knew he was in sin. I can't go to communion, I can't do that, ah! And he said somehow he made it through, but it nearly wrecked him. The vicar didn't give up. The vicar said again. And so he read this religious book and it was worthless, he said. It was just, just, it didn't solve the needs in his soul. And then at Easter time, the vicar says, you're coming this Sunday. And so he's mulling over this. This is Easter Sunday and I'm still in sin. I'm not right. I, how can I do this? And he's thinking about the Passover sacrifice because they taught the Bible back in those days. And back in the Passover days, the, the Jewish priests would lay their hands on a goat in the Holy of, or before the Holy of Holies and they would pass all their guilt onto that sheep, onto that sheep. And the sheep would take all the guilt for them. And he said, ah, that's how they killed Jesus. They knew they were wrong, but they knew the next day they could pass all the guilt off to the sheep. That's how they did it. Who could possibly live with that level of guilt to know you kill an innocent man who heals and takes care of people, who did nothing deserving his own death? That's how they did it. They knew the guilt was going to be passed. It was a real thing in their mind. They could take this guilt, this tangible guilt, and place it and not have to deal with their own consciences. Who told them that? The Holy Spirit in his own room sitting And then in his heart, he said, but I don't have a sheep. I don't have anybody to take my guilt. And he realized in that room that Jesus was his lamb. Jesus was his sheep. No preacher around. And at that moment, he gave himself. He said there was nothing tangible. But he said by the time Easter Sunday morning came, he jumped out of bed and said, he's risen. And he knew at that moment that his life had been changed. Now, Charles Simeon didn't have an easy road. You English can be a little harsh on people. 
He was given a commission at Holy Trinity in Cambridgeshire and the congregation didn't like him. They wanted his friend who was graduating from theology school too. He wanted, he wanted, they wanted his friend to be their minister. So what did they do? For five years, they locked their pews. Back in the old, old Anglican days where you bought a pew, they wouldn't let people unlock their pews and they wouldn't show up to service either. And at nighttime when they had the right to hire another minister to come and speak, they hired his friend. Five years he endured. Anybody who wanted to hear the word of God had to stand in the aisles. Can you imagine? Picture that in one of your Anglican churches. You've all been to a high Anglican church. Like with all the wooden pews on the side and everything and the doors. You're preaching. And they have to stand in the rows. Wow. And all this hardship. This man spent five, no, it was, um, he grew to four hours in prayer and worship a day. And they said of his life, after going through this, he was a minister there for, I think, almost 50 years in Cambridge, a real place, a real time, real pews, not a story, real people. He completely shifted the spiritual dynamics of Cambridgeshire and London at that time towards the things of God. Amazing. We are to be a blessing to all the earth. That is your destiny. That is your calling. Now, in, in this end, I just want to say one last character who actually is from the same time around Charles Simeon. If you would, would you pull up the pictures that I did? We'll skip the one on Paul who got knocked off the horse. He was picked too. He was chosen by God. The scriptures don't tell us why he was picked, but here is a man you are all very much familiar with, hopefully. Hopefully this is taught in school still here because it's part of your heritage. It's part of a wonderful gift God has given this nation. There are so many godly men and women who've come up from this nation that you can stand on as a foundation that God still has work here in England. This man, William Wilberforce, oh my, the more I learn about him, the more I'm impressed. He wrote a book at one point in time that lamb-blasted the church at that time. I'm, I, talk about polite, it's called, the, the name of it is basically a practical view of the Christianity held by the upper and middle classes of our country in contrast to the Bible. Oh, no, no, it wasn't the Bible. In contrast to real Christianity. Whoo! He's basically saying everything the upper class and middle class holds is a farce. And this is what the Bible says. He was a firebrand, and apparently he was extremely eloquent. But in 1787, Wilberforce sensed a call from God, and he wrote this personally in his journal. If you would pull up the church, maybe just a picture of the church, because I want you to see these are real people and real places. This is only 10 miles from this church. This is a church that he joined and they were called the Clapham sect because it's in, up in Clapham. Clapham? 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 Okay. 10 miles from here. 10 miles. You can get on a train and get there. You can get on a bus and get there. But this church still stands to this day. This is pretty much what it looked like in, in, in Wilberforce's day. But he had an encounter with God and he wrote in his journal in 1787, God Almighty has set me before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, or which was moral values, the raising up of Christian values back in the nation. Those two things. That was 
God placed upon his heart. Many of you know that Wilberforce didn't get it the next week. He didn't end the slave trade in a month. He didn't end the slave trade in a year. There's time there. 18 years he waited for the first bill to go through that didn't abolish slavery, but it abolished slave trade. And so he got to see that when he was alive. But 18 years of struggle, of sickness, of opposition, and even the book that I mentioned before, the, the, um, the practical view of the, of the religious views of the day compared to the Bible, he said, I wanted to write this sooner and I'd like to write it better. This is in his preface. However, my sickness and ailments have held me back from getting enough time to do it properly, but I can't wait any longer. Forgive me, that's a real paraphrase of his words. Much more eloquent than that. But he had to wait 18 years to see what God called him to. Are these callings a calling to be a blessing to the nations? Yes. He impacted not just England, but all the British Empire. By 1833, it was abolished in most of the, of the British Empire. Slavery was abolished. He got to see it. I think he died either three days before or three days after. Who knows? Three days before? So three days before, after, okay. It helps if I have my glasses. I can read lips better. <laughs> he got to see it in 1833 the abolishment of all slave trade. That is a practical working out of what God spoke in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There will be opposition. There will be waiting. When I first came to Christ, there were sins that fell right off me, addictions and things like that that just completely went. But there's other things that linger. But God promises I have victory over all sin. I have victory. I have abundant life. How can you hold on to that promise when sins are knocking at your door and wanting to master you? When you want to grumble and complain or you find yourself at your house saying, Aah! or you're at work and you think, Aah! and you want to grumble and complain and say, so-and-so doesn't have to deal with this. If I did this, ah, and all the grumbling and complaining, that's not our new life. I can't say that that's okay. That's to be rejected. That's to be said, no, that's sin. Don't just call it the way I was brought up. It's not the way my father and mother did things. It's sin. And the promise of God is I can live abundantly over those things and I can have a heart that rejoices. I must hold on to the truth of God. Don't say, this is what my culture taught me. This is what my family taught me. We have to, when God begins to reveal the things that have to go, we have to say, this is not acceptable. I do war against these things. They're not acceptable. I, I can't pray. God, help me. I'm not gonna live a life that's prayerless. I'm going to fight. I'm not gonna live a life that doesn't read the word of God. I'm going to fight. Because people are supposed to look at me and see they're blessed. Now, if you're looking at me today, you might say, hey, he's a little tarnished over here, a little tarnished over here. But there must be a glimmer of God. I must fight for the glimmer and that life of God that's supposed to shine for me, to shine to this generation in this time. And that is fighting through. I didn't call this suffering today because suffering implies in our language, because the wonder of language, in our culture and time, suffering is something you just get and you have to live with it. 
Opposition is something you rise up in faith. And all three of these men contended for the truth. They undug wells. They waited for a child. They believed God for what he said. And we must do the same. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. God has a beautiful life for you. God has a beautiful life for you. God has a beautiful life for you. You have to fight for it. If you've got ugly years behind you like Jacob, you can be a blessing to all the earth. You can be a blessing to the next generation. You can be the one that rises up and says, I will believe God. I will take hold of that life, that shining part of my heart that needs to reach the world. I will. That is the conclusion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I hope you don't leave that 4,000 years ago. I hope the testimonies of Lydia Prince, I hope the testimonies of Charles Simeon, I hope the testimonies of William Wilberforce rise up before you and say, yes, I can be a blessing. Opposition will come, but I will contend. I will contend. And I don't know exactly what's against you today. I don't know exactly what type of discouragement could be facing you. Maybe you're in a good season where you're riding out on that surfboard and the truths of God are great for you. But if you are in a season of opposition, or if it's something that comes back again and again, but I've got this, but this, I don't see how this can happen. This isn't gonna happen. I'm not gonna see what I wanted to see. Say, lie. I am going to see it. And you rise up in hope because all these people experienced the blessings of God going out to the world. Would you rise with me? I'm just going to pray and then we're going to worship. There are some psalms called the Psalm of Ascents. And they were specifically made specifically made for the Jewish people when they had to go for the feast to Jerusalem. It was a long journey. They had to go over hill and dale. But they would sing these songs. And you can picture a father grabbing, the, grabbing his, father, his son's arm and they march out, first mile. They can't see Jerusalem, but they got a long way ahead. But then the father begins to lift his voice and say, I will arise. There's a city on a hill that I'm going to. Psalm 121, 122, 123. Lift our eyes. Where will my help come from? My help will come from the maker of heaven and earth. And he begins holding that young man's hand and he's walking, hope, sharing the sorrows, sharing the joys, but saying, we're going. We're in a common purpose. And they would join in the hills of Jerusalem, rising three times a year. This praise to God as people would sing and their way to Jerusalem. Can you imagine hearing it? Oh God, there's another train over there. There's another group coming from that direction. And the praises of God rising in the hills of Jerusalem, all descending for the great feast. That's a picture for you. As we worship today, we're marching to a purpose to see the God of the Bible raised up in our nation and time like he's not right now that a God who worthy of praise is lifted up because our lives reflect his glory. Amen? Amen? That is our destiny. And together, singing, putting our eyes on Christ, we will see great things, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.